episode number 21 with Sarah Lloyd. Sarah, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you doing? How's the year for you? It's been a crazy couple of months here. We're about to go on another break, but yeah. everything been good? Yeah, everything's really good. I think, uh, you know, I'm adjusting to hybrid teaching as well as anyone else's. So mm-hmm. just kind of uh, taking it day by day and trying to be empathetic to everyone else around to me too. So yeah. It's crazy not seeing anyone in school, especially today. Like I walking down the hallways, no one was here on a Wednesday. Um, but that part's been bizarre. But I think for my classes, the boys are doing pretty well virtually, which is shocking because it's so hard to pay attention on a screen, especially when you're doing it three times 70, you know, every day of the week. Um, but that's awesome. Maybe you can talk about what classes you teach here and really what you do at Gilman. Yeah, so I, um, I'm i in the history department, or I straddle the history and art department, depending on how you look at it. I teach ninth grade world cultures, I teach 11th grade U.S. history, and I also teach AP art history, which is a coordinated class too. So um, that's my teaching load. And then I also coach um, swimming and water polo at the upper school level. Um, and I advise the uh, Gender and Sexuality Alliance, or the GSA, as well. Awesome. Uh, teaching three different preps is not common. Most people don't have three, if I'm correct on that, right? Yeah, you're, no, you're right. You're yeah. one of one of very few teachers who teach three preps. So you're you're. How did you start to do that so early on in your career, having you know having to prepare for three different classes? I know that, that that's very hard. I only have two, and it's hard. Yeah, I think so. I started with ninth grade world cultures as my first my first class when I was here for the first two years. And then last year, um, they needed someone to teach U.S. history. And that was, you know, something that I felt comfortable doing. So I said yes to that. Um, And then Amy Huntoon, who retired last year, needed someone to take over the art history program. And um, I also said yes to that. So um, and at one point last year, I was teaching a senior elective too. So I actually had four preps. Um, four preps. So this year, the three is is a little bit easier. Um, but I have trouble saying no when people ask me to do things. And mm-hmm. so I, I get myself into some pickles. But it's actually um, a lot of fun because I'm passionate about everything that I'm teaching. So it doesn't feel too much like a drag. Yeah, you have a lot of different passions. And s- similar to a lot of the episodes we've done so far, like Robbie Ford, I remember talking to him on here. And just finding out more and more about him that I didn't even know before. So I'm excited to talk to you about everything that you're into and you like to do in school, outside of school, as your profession, at home, whatever. How did you, first maybe we could start, how did you get into teaching? Why did you take this route if you have all these different passions that you could pursue, get a PhD or teach in college? Or why, why Gilman? Why all boys school? How'd you get here? Yeah, I like to joke that it's the family business. So both of my parents are teachers um, and my grandfather on my mom's side was also a teacher. Um, and some Gilman alums might know his name, Bill Miller. He was in the middle school for 37 years. So that's a weird familial connection that I have with Gilman. Um, but I just kind of fell in love with teaching through um exploring camp counseling and uh, teaching program opportunities that I had in college as well. So um, I tried a couple other things before settling on teaching. And um, I think I'm a student at heart and I always feel intellectually stimulated as as the teacher as well. So it's rewarding for me 
it's not a, it's not just a job. It's not something that just kind of I do. I, mm-hmm. I genuinely enjoy it. I genuinely like it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but I joke it's the family business. Like, yeah, that's so. awesome. And you grew up on a boarding school, correct? Yeah, I grew up at, on the campus of the uh, Petty School in New Jersey. Um, we lovingly called ourselves fac brats. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, we, I was always around teachers i i think i was in third grade when i realized that not everyone's parents were teachers (laughs) because like all of the adults in my life were teachers too so it didn't make like it took me a minute to figure out that like teaching was not the thing that everyone's parents did Mm -hmm. so yeah almost a lot of those school communities are almost just super small and tightly knit bubbles and it's hard to see outside of that yeah and even at gilman sometimes like you're, you're in here, you're almost living at this school. I'm, I'm right down the street. So it, it does feel like that sometimes, but it, there are a lot of positives about that, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had the run of campus when I was a kid growing up. Like we didn't have curfews necessarily. It was like my parents turned us out in the mornings during the summer and said, come back for lunch. And then after lunch, they'd turn us out again and say, come back for dinner. And then after dinner, we'd probably go back out on campus and like play a game of manhunt with all of our friends who also lived on campus. So it was like this almost like utopian childhood of like climbing trees and skinning our knees and racing our bikes. And um, I look back on it and like think I could probably write a memoir, but Maybe not. About petty school. Yeah, or just like growing up on a campus. Is petty school all girls or is it mixed? No, it's co-ed. Co-ed? Okay. Yep. What was that experience like? So you went to petty from a very young age all throughout. Well, so petty is only an upper, like a high okay. school. So yeah, I cool. went to public school up and th- through eighth grade and then went to petty for high school. So Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, so after petty, you went to Kenyon. Mm-hmm. Um, was there anything at Kenyon that funneled you down this direction into teaching or was it kind of natural and and like Gilman you have that family connection was there something that led you here or is this kind of just fate that you found the same place that your your grandfather taught so I think uh, my personal connections with my professors at Kenyon was really influential um Kenyon is like super small, like 1600 kids. And so my largest class, I think, was like 30. And I was on a first name basis with most of my professors just because, Mm. you know, you're small. It's a small campus and you see each other all over the place. And so having those meaningful connections um, Mm. with my professors kind of influenced my decision to teach. Um, But I also think that um, just kind of the intellectual stimulation I got at Kenyon want like made me want to look for places that fostered that same kind of that same kind of community and so when I was looking for teaching positions um I applied to Gilman you know you know thinking like having known about Gilman for most of my life Mm -hmm. but also like just trying to expand a little bit um and the other schools that I visited didn't feel the way that Kenyon felt and Gilman had the same kind of community feel so there was that um, kind of intangible connection hmm. that I felt here. How would you compare Gilman to Petty? Is it a similar feel, similar vibe, or is it pretty different? I think it's pretty similar in some pretty key ways. I think tradition is deeply rooted in both institutions. Um, I think that there's a there's a real sense of camaraderie and community within both um, both communities. But I also think. 
um, that the nature of a boys' school makes it a little, like Gilman particularly, makes it a little bit different. Um, mm-hmm. And I was looking for something different. I didn't want exactly the same. Gotcha. So. All boys' school as a female teacher coming in, was that a tough decision to make? Or was that something where you were like, I feel pretty comfortable on campus at an all boys school. I think I was a little bit scared at first. Um, Mm. I think it was, it made me a little bit nervous. Um, But I also had some really great mentors initially to kind of help me through that initial process of like figuring out where I stood and where I fit in with the faculty and with, within the greater community. Um, So was it scary? Yeah. But I think I didn't necessarily need to be scared I think mm-hmm. it was just something new. Yeah, especially teaching in the upper school. Like if you don't act a certain way, the class can kind of get out of control. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt that at some points. And I was maybe on the defense my first year, but because um, I was wary of that. I was like, I'm teaching 11th graders and, you know, they, they're they going to try to get away with things. And I have to maybe act a certain way because I'm so close in age to them. Um, how did you jump right into the classroom and and kind of find your style? So I think I had a little bit of an advantage because I was working with ninth graders and they were just as, I think, scared as I was in some ways. You know, they're they're now the little guys on the big campus. And by little, I mean, like, some of them were, like, maybe 100 pounds soaking wet when I first started teaching. Um, They've grown since, obviously. But um, so I think I had that advantage. But I also think that, like, I was on the defensive um, early on, just because I wasn't sure what they were trying to test me, like where they were going. Um, but I really tried to foster kind of a, a camaraderie and a community within my own classroom. So mm-hmm. I think by November, most of them had me figured out and I had them figured out. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't have to see eye to eye on things, but we had a mutual respect for each other, I think, that um, made my first year of teaching pretty successful, honestly. Yeah, wow, okay. That's awesome. That's pretty lucky, I think. My first year, I would say it was successful, and I was definitely in a similar way as you were uh, influenced by my mentors, especially Brian, um, during that experience. But it it was difficult, and I don't know if I broke out of the weird gender dynamic funk with the with the girls' schools and the guys in the room for the same class for the first class, really for most of them. It was a little awkward for that first year, but that, that's awesome to hear that your first year kind of gave you some momentum going into the rest of I think first year is probably the hardest, in, in my opinion. I would say my second year was definitely the harder one. Okay. I think, like, I was no longer concerned about, like, how I was teaching. I was more concerned about, like, improving what I had learned my first year. And so I think I was more critical of myself my second year, hmm. um, picking up an additional class, um, you know, kind of realizing mistakes that I had made my first year and like wanting to change that. So mm-hmm. my first year was kind of a blur. Like, I think it was successful, but I think I was just kind of on, like, I, I was always going, the gears were always moving. And my second year, when I had time to sit and kind of reflect, I was like, oh, like mm-hmm. there are things that can be fixed. There are things that I can do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a little bit, I think, more challenging for me, honestly. Yeah. And, and for people who don't know, you were part of the UPenn Fellowship Program. So I, I talked with Erica on the last podcast about how the Penn Fellowship not only gives you that mentorship coming in, but is really just a reflective practice. The whole thing is reflective. And I think that's so key to teaching is you're always looking 
and, and not every teacher does this, and I probably in my third year of teaching don't do this as often as I should, but the best thing to do is look at your class that you just taught, would I do well, what could I have done better, and then you continue to increase throughout the rest of that year um, or improve throughout the rest of that year, and that was really beneficial to me in that second year specifically. I think. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I think too, I have a tendency to be overly critical of myself. I'm trying to recognize that. And so I will think something has gone horribly and someone else will be like, oh my gosh, that was wonderful. And I'm starting to have to learn to like listen to other people when they like compliment me because I'm not very good at taking compliments. Oh, I'm the same way. And Brian was so complimentary my first and second year. And I was like, Brian, come on. Right. Brooks, is, Brooks was my mentor, um, and I will say this over and over again, best mentor I could have ever had. Um, but he was always like, oh, my gosh, that lesson went so well. And I was like, really? Because I, I think this, 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 and this, like, mm-hmm. you know, flopped or whatever. And so just kind of learning to take feedback is something that I think I'm still working on but slowly getting better at. So you're, you're – and that's another thing that Gilman does really well is pairs the fellows and the, you know, the first-year teachers here who are kind of just thrown into the classroom – um, trying to get that experience, but Gilman sets you up really nicely with a mentor that that will fit. In my experience, um, how was that for you with Brooks? How did Gilman get that right? I think Brooks is just a natural mentor anyway, um, and it made sense because I was coming into the history department, and he mm-hmm. had been. I mean, he's been here for a while and had been teaching world cultures probably as long as world cultures curriculum has been in place, and so it was a natural kind of choice. Um, for functionality purposes, but also I think um, I interviewed and got to, uh, you know, sit in on one of his classes and I really enjoyed the way he taught and we had a good conversation. And so I think there was some um, kind of reciprocity in that, like he wanted to work with me and I wanted to work with him even before we got paired together. So mm-hmm. it um, it worked out really nicely. Yeah, that's awesome. So um so now that you're pretty comfortable here at Gilman, you're teaching three different preps. What what are you doing with this new hybrid model, and how are you figuring out this whole experience? And I think this this might be helpful for some of the other teachers at Gilman and people outside the community too who are who are maybe watching this. Um, where have you found success with this whole new system of learning? And and I've said before that the Penn Fellowship experience helped me with all the systems and the learning management tools and technology that we're all using now as teachers, but maybe you have some things that are, that are working really well for you in the classroom so far this year. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm going to couch this in saying like, I think everyone's trying things that like work and don't work. And so, you know, take this for what it is. Um, I have found that student led work in this model is more beneficial than a lecture based or, kind of um, like roundtable discussion based because it's so easy to pick up your phone when you're on a Zoom call and kind of zone out if all you have to do is take notes. And so what I've found is that if you're asking students to become the expert on something and then bring that to the table and discuss with their classmates, you get more engagement um, from them and from their classmates as well. And so what I've been trying to do is small group work. I've been trying to do student-led discussions, um, some fish bowls. So things that allow the student to kind of, and the students to kind of drive 
what's happening in class. Mm -hmm. Like, do I have classes where I'm like, we have stuff to get through and you're going to have to just bear with me for 70 minutes while we talk about the election of 1800? Yes. Mm -hmm. But I think what's more beneficial is when students are actively um, kind of engaged in researching and and finding the answers themselves instead of being fed the answers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And bringing that to the table and feeling that responsibility where, I mean, even for anyone, like sitting on a Zoom call, it's just so distracting. Right. To, you have everything right there at your fingertips. I mean, I don't blame them in some, in some sense. You are still in class, but like it's just human instinct. If something pops up on your computer, I mean, we saw in this in this social um, social dilemma, social dilemma, like it's all targeted. It's oh, it's, absolutely. It's like it's 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 well, grasping like, your receptors. And, yeah, you know? and we're like conditioned to get like to want that feedback, right? And so when something buzzes in our pocket, there's so like there's that dopamine rush. There's like oh, what like what did I get? And so I don't blame the student. Like I do it right. Like mm-hmm. we've been on faculty meetings that have gone just a little bit too long, and we start checking. Mm-hmm. whatever social media we want to check. So yep. I just try to keep it relevant and I try to keep it um, more kind of uh, tactile mm-hmm. in terms of engagement. So for that history class, I'm interested because talking to Kevin Hudson on the podcast and just my sense of what a history class looks like, a lot of videos and movies, but that's pretty difficult right now, I think, to show movies and films and, and videos during this virtual setup. How is that history class going? I'm, I'm interested in what you guys are learning in there and talking about. Yeah, so in the U.S., we're, we're on our um, unit on slavery in the Civil War, which is like the most depressing unit to send them off into winter break with. So sorry, kids. Um, but I love kind of online platforms that allow you to post movies and then or post clips and then have them engage with that. So Edpuzzle is a really cool platform. So you can post a a YouTube clip or a a movie of some sort and add questions in. And so the, you know, they're they're watching the clip and then it pauses because there's a question and then they answer the question. And at that point, they can then continue on with the clip um, Mm. that they're watching. So it it you know, there's engagement there and it's, um, it doesn't get choppy. So like we've all tried to kind of screen share and, and watch movies together and it, it doesn't work, right? It doesn't Audio work well. and the video don't match up together. The quality's horrible. Um, so, so I like Edpuzzle. Um, I like kind of sending them off on a this or that kind of scavenger hunt. So, um, with my ninth graders, I we did an intro to Sub-Saharan Africa, and they were offered one like so they were offered two um, kind of sources for each kind of un, like kind of uh, topic, I guess, mm-hmm. and they could watch this one or that one, and then they went on to the next one. They chose one or the other, and so kind of student agency, but also exploring different um, avenues within yep. that. And again, giving them some agency right. and choice and. Yeah, that's that's definitely effective for this situation right now. Absolutely. Um, so, in terms of your history, and did did you study history? Did yeah, you study, studied history. Yeah, in I college? was a double major because I'm that masochist. I double majored in art history and history, and my history concentration was um, Atlantic world relations. So, kind of the process of colonization, decolonization, and independence movements in and around the Atlantic. And you were telling me your thesis was on piracy? Yeah, my thesis was on 
um, pirate economics legislation and kind of these proto-socialist communities that evolved on pirate ships. Yeah, that was interesting to me because I didn't re- I didn't know too much about piracy before that conversation. And you were saying that you might want to have some type of senior elective on yeah. that. I think that'd be cool. Yeah, I, I'm I'm rolling. That's rolling around in my head how I would approach that. Yeah. Um, kind of, you know, thinking about who I would include and what I would include. But pirates are definitely something I'm fascinated by. How did you, how did you get into pirates and piracy? This is going to sound so dumb, but Pirates of the Caribbean. Really? The movie franchise. I thought, like, I loved it. I thought, like, I love historical dramas to begin with, uh, mostly because I like to pick them apart and, like, figure out what's not accurate. And when I tried to do that with Pirates of the Caribbean, I found that it was actually very accurate. Um, so that kind of sparked this interest in, like, Okay, historically accurate piracy. Let's talk about like why and how. Mm-hmm. And so that's where that started. So if I wanted to go home and, and look up some pirates and learn more about piracy, where do you think I should start? Um, so there are a couple pirates in kind of urban legends that are actual people. So Blackbeard's an actual pirate. Um, his ship was uh, wrecked off the coast of South Carolina. So... Um, divers on clear on clear ocean days can actually go and see the Queen Anne's Revenge. Um, so Blackbeard is a real um, pirate. Uh, the guy on our like the the rum bottle, Captain Morgan, is mm-hmm. also a real pirate. Um, so that is um, another person that you kind of could kind of Ca- dive Captain into. Morgan, where does he where does he Captain Morgan um, was a British pirate, kind of based out of Barbados. Um, And he had this really bad habit of sailing to Port Royal, Jamaica, sacking the city and sailing away. And then after three or four years, when they had rebuilt the city, he would sail back and he would sack the city and sail away. And I think the third or fourth time he showed up at Port Royal, Jamaica, they recognized his flag and the governor of the city came out, like ran out onto the docks and basically said, like, please stop burning our city to the ground. Stop stealing from us. Like, if you like don't do that, you can be governor. And Captain Morgan was like, huh, that sounds like a good deal. And so Henry Morgan gave up piracy to become the the governor of Port Royal, Jamaica. So they bribed him? They bribed him. Wow. Yeah. Bribery is big in piracy. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Um, that's cool. So you wrote your thesis on piracy mm-hmm. and got into it from Pirates of the Caribbean. That's, yep. that's pretty cool. How about your interest in art history? Where did that spark? Um, so when I was in high school, I had a gaping hole in my schedule for senior year. And the only thing other than like a math class that would fill that hole was AP art history. And so I took AP art history as a senior in high school um, and just kind of fell in love with it. I love and I had always appreciated art. I'd always been the kid that like really wanted to go to museums. Um, but Wait, ever an artist yourself or, or just kind of no, appreciated I, I, it? Yeah, no, I, I tell people that I look at art and I study art, but I don't make it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my sister's job. Um, but so our AP art history senior year was just kind of eye opening. And I had a wonderful teacher who really kind of made it accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, although the first day of class, she did walk in and say no one in the history of this class has ever gotten lower than a five on the exam. So like there was some pressure there. Hmm from her. Um, but she made it really fun and really easy. And so, um, took that. And then I went to 
college um, and kind of decided I wanted to explore like what Kenyon did with art history and like fell in love with most of the professors. And so it was kind of a done deal that I was going to major in art history. And then history tacked itself onto it because I could, I was drawing parallels between my history classes and my art history classes. Hmm. Was there a specific class that you took at Kenyon that you really liked or enjoyed and that wanted that made you want to continue with art history as a as a track um so i think the first one i so kenyon breaks up kind of survey of art into two parts based on semester and so survey part two i took my second semester of freshman year and like fell in love with the way that the professor taught the course and then went on to take like as many classes as i could with him um, just because he made it so much fun and he was engaging and he was colloquial. Um, so I loved Survey 2. Um, but I think the the class that sticks with me the most from Kenyon was my history of, or my history of African-American art class, which mm. was really fascinating um, and art that like no one like no one had told me about before, but was so pervasive. Um, and so I was really kind of intrigued by. Um, the way that the class was set up and this, the, this class was set up based on kind of the, the framing and reframing of the black body in American imagery, um, both by white people and by black people. And I found it so, so powerful. Um, so I actually like modeled a, an elective off of it for Gilman students, hmm. um, but loved that found found it really helpful in kind of deciphering pop culture and kind of the imagery that we are saturated with, um, you know, in music and in, in video and kind of the film industry as well um, and sports. There's a lot of talk about the black body in sports and what that means for the American psyche. So that class was kind of like an eye-opening experience for me. Black body in sports, I'm curious. What, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, the way that the way that the black body or black people in the United States are valued kind of for what the the physicality of them is and not necessarily intellectual and I'm not saying that like no black people are valued for their intellectual capacity but my professor did this thing where he was like name five famous black people and like 95% of the class named like Martin Luther King Jr. and like four athletes. Mm. And so there's this kind of um, interesting discussion going on about like what we value um, as an American society, right? We value football, we value basketball. Well, the majority of those athletes are black. Um, how does that kind of play into how we depict black people? Or how we maybe stereotype? or Yeah, stereotype or kind of funnel them into channels, right? Like, so are we valuing a student who is academically inclined or are we valuing the student who wants to go D1 in a sport Mm. and like where that kind of dichotomy is? How do you, so just in general here at Gilman, because Gilman emphasizes as athletic so much, how do you think um, we balance the academics with the athletics here. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Well, I think that there's, I think this, the competitive nature of athletics, I think funnels really well into kind of academic drive as well. Um, some of the best students I've taught have been also phenomenal athletes. Um, and so I think what Gilman does is foster this idea that like academic pursuits and athletic pursuits are not in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. In fact, 
if you would like to go to college to play sports, you should also look at colleges that are going to feed you intellectually, mm-hmm. right? And my experience in college as, a, as an NCAA athlete was also one of academic pursuit and athletic pursuit that did not take away from each other. Um, so I really like that Gilman emphasizes both equally because you don't have to just be a student. You don't have to just be an athlete. There's there's a blending that goes on because athletics are part of the school day. Do you think as – so you were swimming and water polo in, in college? I didn't play just... water polo. No, I got to Gilman and they were like, so swimming and water – you can coach water polo, right? I was like, they're very different, but I will learn – so, uh, did, so you had to learn a lot. I had about to learn it. a lot about water polo initially, oh, but I just I, I was a swimmer in college, so so yeah, okay. Um, but if you were at Kenyon, do you think if you hadn't swam there, do you think um, like how would that have changed your experience at Kenyon if you didn't have the athletic piece? Yeah, I think it would have been a, a very different experience, and I don't know that it would have been a bad different, but I think it would have been very different. I ran in some very different circles. Um, so Miss Royals, who's new in the English department, it was actually two years behind me at Kenyon. And like, I knew her name, but we never really interacted because our circles were so different. At um, such a small school. At too. such a small school. Right. And so I think part of it is um, the swimming program at Kenyon is really intense. And so I was practicing 10 times a week. And so the people that I was spending time with were people that had a similar schedule to myself, right? Right. So I was in bed by 11 every night and not partying because I had to get up at 520 for practice because I had to get in the pool at 6am, right? Mm -hmm. And so and then I was also, you know, getting homework done in between classes because I had to be in the pool from four to six in the evening and then eating dinner and getting work done. And so naturally, you kind of find people with a similar schedule as yourself. And that was my teammates. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, I think my experience at Kenyon would have been different, but I don't necessarily think it would have been any worse. Mm. Um, but I think having a sport where you are mandated to go to practice at these t- times forces you to make that schedule and go to bed when you d- did. And having a set schedule is so important, as, as we have found out during COVID, right? Right. Like having a set schedule that you have to f- follow every day in order to be successful in the pool and in the classroom is like crucial. And I think as an athlete in college, I if I didn't have lacrosse to like help schedule my day, right, I would have done other things. And I might people say all the time, if I didn't have the sport, I would have done way better in school. And I don't know if that's true. I, I think I would have done worse in school. Yeah, I think. Swimming disciplined me to the point where I had everything down and scheduled. And I think that if I like had gotten those four hours of my life back that I was spending in the pool every day, I don't know that I would have done anything more productive during those times. Mm-hmm. So the time crunch for me made me, made me very productive. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I like, I, even when the, the season ended, my productivity went down. Like I had time between four and six in the afternoons and I wasn't doing anything with that time. Right. And so um, the schedule made me a better student, I think. And it's also just exercise, too. Like you come back from practice and your brain is refreshed and you can sit down for a couple hours and do right. your, your homework and then go to bed. Um, Absolutely. So, I mean, you have to exercise anyway. And like people don't really think about scheduling those parts of their day, but you get lost in whatever if you're watching a Netflix show or, you know, going to the museum. You get lost in that time and you don't have anywhere to be. Right. Really. Exactly. 
What was the most difficult part for you at Kenyon being a student athlete with a double double major, you're writing a thesis, you're into all these different fields, um, you have to go to bed early and wake mm-hmm. up early. Like, what, what was the most difficult part of that experience? I think recognizing probably my junior year that I had limited myself socially um, to my teammates. And I'm not saying my teammates weren't wonderful. They were wonderful. And I, they're some of my best friends, but I think, um, I did not make time for people outside of my team. And so I ended up in this bubble, um, Mm -hmm. that got kind of toxic in some respects, right? Like if you're with the same, and again, we've figured this out with COVID, right? When you were in your little pod and you're not seeing anyone else out of that pod, I think that there can be things that you you recognize about someone that really drive you nuts or like you do things that you don't recognize drive other people nuts and so there's this kind of um, toxicity that builds within that group and so recognizing that I had limited myself socially was I think a hard um, hard thing for me to swallow initially and then when I finally like you know swallowed my pride and like started to hang out with other people like it was a lot um I don't want to say better because I don't think it was better. I just think I had different outlets for different things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I could be a nerd for art with people who weren't on my team, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So most of my teammates were STEM majors. I think that's just kind of the nature of swimming as a sport. It kind of like draws people who are kind of mm-hmm. interested in the STEM world. Um, and so I was one of like four four or five humanities people on the team and so um how big was the team how many uh, girls on the team it was 80 people total between men's and women's oh so like 40 maybe it wasn't that small of a circle i was no it wasn't but like i was also my my training group was pretty insular because i was a distance swimmer and they're just naturally fewer of them so i was not interacting with all of the people on the team every day because I was training with just that handful of people. Gotcha. Well, that I think that's good advice for people who are going to college because it's very easy to get in with a crew your freshman year and stay with that group. And part of college is just meeting people and figuring out, you know, getting to know yourself more through other people and learning more about like just meeting random people yep. in college. I still talk to people today that. I met my freshman year and that's really why I feel mm-hmm. for these, this freshman group um, right yeah. now during COVID because that it's a crucial time to meet new people that you're going to have Absolutely. connection with for a while after. I, the best thing I did was live with someone not on the team. Mm-hmm. So living in a dorm with someone who did not have my schedule was like the best thing I could have done, I think. Yeah. It's nice to go back after a long day of practice and talk to someone else about right. other things. Exactly. Um, yeah, I totally know what you mean by it, it can get toxic if that sport is your whole life and right. you have no break from it. Right. Um, and a lot of that energy, whether it's good or bad, like can rub off. If, if there's a bad week at practice, everyone's going to feel that. And it's oh, just yeah. going to be, yeah, it's going to be bad for the team. Definitely. But it's nice to get away and then come back refreshed. Um, yeah. Awesome. So I'm, I'm curious about the art history class that you teach at Gilman and, mm-hmm. what, and what you guys are doing in that class this year. Yeah. So this is AP art history. Um, it's coordinated. So I have nine students this year. I have four Gilman students. I have three 
Bryn Mawr students and two RPCS students. Um, and they have been, I mean, it's an awesome group and they're intellectually curious. And so um, our conversations are awesome. But we have just finished the Baroque period, um, which for those of you, uh, for people who don't know what Baroque period is, it's like right after the Reformation. Um, so there's a pretty big split kind of stylistically between countries and artists who are Catholic and countries and artists who are Protestant. Um, so it's this really interesting um, period in art where the art really reflects kind of the religious and political um, climate of the time period. How was the how was Protestant art different from? So the Protestant Reformation, particularly with the Calvinistic kind of leanings of a lot of um, the the newly Protestant countries um, really frowned on image making. Um, so one of the commandments is like, thou shalt not make graven images. And the, for the Protestant church took that pretty literally. So they whitewashed their churches, they removed icons, they weren't painting um, images of holy figures anymore. And so it changes what the paintings are about. So you get a lot more landscape, you get a lot more genre scenes. It's very reserved almost. Hmm. Um, you're not seeing kind of the you're not seeing the mo the more dramatic pieces like biblical imagery right so and then the the catholic countries are engaging in the counter reformation which is basically like hey come back we want you back this is the true church and they do that through image making so things get more dramatic the biblical imagery becomes um, more beautiful and more gold encrusted and mm -hmm. more opulent um, just to kind of demonstrate kind of the beauty of that church. Hmm. So there's a really cool split between what artists are doing in primarily the northern countries. So the Dutch, um, the, the Netherlands, um, parts of England, and also like what Italy is doing or what Flanders is doing, what Spain is doing at that time. Who were some of the artists um, from the Protestant side who were making those landscapes and those less realistic portrayals yeah. of biblical imagery? Um, so some of the Northern Baroque pa painters that you should probably be aware of are Jan Vermeer, um, who's actually Catholic, but painting in the Netherlands. So he can't really be overtly Catholic. So he, he does a lot of, um, he's genre. like under, undercover. Almost. Yeah. He's like undercover. So like girl with the pearl earring is his woman holding a balance is his, um, Rembrandt Van Rien, um, is working in the Netherlands at that time. Rachel Roish and Judith Leister are two women who are doing a really great job of making, um, money as painters in the Northern, uh, Baroque period. Um, and then, uh, down South, you have artists like Diego Velasquez in Spain, um, Caravaggio in Italy, Artemisia Gentileschi in Italy, who are doing these really dramatic scenes. These are Catholic. The, they're Catholic, they're Catholics. yeah. Mm -hmm. So Caravaggio is an interesting figure that you guys were just learning about. Yeah, Caravaggio is this really cool... Um, he's kind of the bad boy of Baroque art. Like legend has it, he murdered a guy and had to go on the run for a little bit. Um, but he is probably most famous for his depiction of the calling of St. Matthew. Um, he also does the conversion of St. Paul. Um, and some genre scenes with like mildly androgynous looking men in kind of, uh, Bacchus like regalia. 
So he's an interesting character. The Calling of St. Matthew is a painting that if you haven't seen it, you should You should see it, yeah. You should definitely check out because the the way that Jesus is pointing at Matthew is like very lackadaisical, right? And mm-hmm. Matthew is pointing at himself. Yep. Like you're looking at he's he's a tax collector. Yeah, so Matthew's a tax collector, which is like a, a big no-no in the biblical time period, right? It like tax collectors didn't have a set salary and so they collected the taxes for Rome but then like added on money so they could make money for themselves and like people just mm. you know d- generally didn't like tax collectors and so Jesus is calling a tax collector to be one of his disciples and the way that Caravaggio paints it is really interesting because the light is not on Jesus which is like he's in the shadows he's in the shadows and the the hand gesture of like the call um is very reminiscent of the hand that Michelangelo does in the, yeah, in the Sistine Chapel calling of or creating of Adam. So there's like reciprocity and kind of a, a recognition of who's come before him in that. Yeah. The um in, in Matthew too, he's pointing at himself, but he also has his hand on the on the money, on the money. On the yeah. money that he's collecting. Right. Um but just the, I think Caravaggio is most known for his not 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 only his biblical depictions and his realistic portrayals, which like was probably I'm definitely frowned upon. Like he was painting people like right off the streets almost, right? And yeah, and the church was like, you shouldn't be painting like randos. These. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but the way he uses light, and yeah, light. yeah. So he pioneers a, a technique called chiaroscuro, which basically is an Italian word for shadows. Um, and the way that he it he always has very dramatic light coming in from one particular place. And so oftentimes it's the upper left hand corner of the painting. Um, but he also saturate like he's hyper saturating his colors and also really emphasizing the um, contrast between light and dark. So mm-hmm. like even if the scene itself is not dramatic, the lighting makes it dramatic, which is something really interesting that he does. Yeah, and seeing that during a time period when you don't have, like today, HD TVs right. and all this stuff, and seeing the way that he portrayed such like important biblical figures was probably like out of this world. It was amazing. Yeah, it's amazing well, to see it today. Exactly, and he's definitely kind. Of, so he's incorporating Leonardo's use of sfumato, which is like smoky. So the way that he blends it and he's amping it up, he's creating even more drama with those with the way that colors are rendered and the way that lines kind of disappear. Um, Caravaggio is particularly good at like hiding his brush strokes, right? Mm. So like, even if you got up very close to the painting, it would be very hard for you to find brush strokes in it because it's so clean and well blended. Is Rembrandt similar? In that Rembrandt way? is brushier. brushier. Um, Rembrandt definitely uses similar lighting techniques, but he's more expressive. The mm-hmm. brush strokes are looser. Um, he's also more expressive in his etchings. So Rembrandt does a series of etchings too. Most people don't know about, but you'll have hyper detail in areas of the etching, like the face or the neck. And then like the shoulder is just like a squiggly line to suggest Mm. a shoulder. Um, The feather in his hat is is a bunch of lines to suggest a feather. But what's brilliant about Rembrandt is that he can use those different kind of techniques to really bring together the full photo, like the full image for you. Hmm. And where was he painting, Rembrandt? He's up in the Netherlands. Okay. And you were telling me Vermeer. You guys were talking about Vermeer the other day. Mm-hmm. And he's another amazing in terms of light and like the light coming through the windows, yeah. right? Yep. 
what what do you discuss when you bring up Vermeer in class? And what Vermeer you- is interesting because um, pers- he's he's Catholic, living in the Netherlands, and so um, he ha- he he wants to include and and does include some vi- some religious um, imagery in his art, but it has to be a little bit clandestine; it can't be overt. Um, but he's also kind of embracing the scientific revolutions that are happening around him. So we're pretty sure he's using something called the camera obscura, which is an early lens. Um, so if you think about like the old cameras where you like put your head under the hood and mm-hmm. like looked through the lens, he's doing something like that. And what the lens is doing is projecting onto a canvas where he can then trace and kind of sketch. Oh. Um, so it's, it's heightening his ability to really capture that moment mm. of the scene. Um, and some art historians are wholly critical of that approach and say, well, it's not pure genius because he's not doing it from sight. And other art historians um, really appreciate his ingenuity, right? Like we're use- he's using the tools around him to produce work that's mm. um, unique and, and hyper real and also contemplative. The so. girl with the pearl earring is sometimes called the female mono or the... Um... Mona Lisa, the, yeah, Dutch, the Dutch, Mona, Mona Lisa. Dutch Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. Why is that? So that's like such a famous piece. Why is that so famous and well regarded? Yeah, I think there's so I think it's enigmatic, just like the like Leonardo's Mona Lisa is right. Like you're not entirely sure where this girl is. You're not entirely sure what her deal is. Um, but it's also uh, and like you have to understand kind of the buttoned up kind of reserved uh, on like social scene at the time period, but, um, it's inherently sexual. Um, Mm -hmm. and there are a couple ways that we know this one, she's making direct eye contact with the viewer, which was like, not a ladylike thing to do. Hmm. Um, and her mouth is also open, which was a, a a suggestion of sexuality of, of uh, understanding her own sexual nature. Um, so putting that with a, a striking gaze is, um, it, it was kind of scandalous at the time period. Hmm. Um, but it's also this display of wealth and kind of opulence. Um, she's wearing this beautiful turban that is blue and gold. And those are two colors that are ridiculously expensive at that time. Um, gold is obviously expensive still today, but the blue pigment had to be lapis lazuli, which had to be imported from Afghanistan, which meant that you had to grind it down. And so it's a really expensive commodity. I mean, you will look at um, kind of uh, commissions for paintings from the time period, and they're not telling the artist like what to paint. They're saying like, you will use this many florins of blue Mm -hmm. in this. So that's like, like, it dictates how much blue and how much color is used which is an indicator that it was really expensive um and similar to the mona lisa right because mona lisa you move anywhere in the room and it seems like she's always following you following you Mm -hmm. maybe not the same thing with the girl with the pearl earring but you you can't really tell which way she's turning right that's another part of that painting absolutely i think i interpret it as like you've called her name and she is looking behind you behind herself to see who's called her name. Hmm. Um, I think the other thing, right, is like, are we going to ignore the like the ping pong ball sized pearl right, in her right. ear? Like we can't because pearls were so expensive and so um, revered in that time period as something that women could um, wear to subtly show 
their wealth and status, right? In a in a society where they're emphasizing kind of modesty and they're emphasizing kind of reserved appearances, pearls were actually accepted. And so you could wear these large pearls and let people know that you had money. Hmm. I mean, like, and they're like beautiful mm-hmm. too. So. Yeah. Wow. So how do you, I'm so curious about how you get Gilman boys and like just knowing some of the guys, some of them for sure would be interested in this, but some would be like, why do I need to know about like the girl with the pearl earring? How do you get those kids and and make them interested in that kind of art? I think, I think first and foremost, people in general, not just Gilman boys are, are supremely impressed with skill. Mm-hmm. Um, something that they cannot do right now when we get into modernist art and we get into abstract expressionism and things that quote unquote I could have done that like then it gets a little bit harder but but art that is fundamentally something that they could not produce mm-hmm. and or or fundamentally could not reproduce I think they find to be fascinating anyway um, I also think that like art is interesting once you understand it mm-hmm. I think to understand it you need to hear the context behind it a lot of the time yeah. Um, and so like telling these stories, right? Like people perk up when they hear like Caravage, you might have murdered a dude. Like right, right. that seems that that adds something to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um so for you know, girl with the pearl earring to be inherently sexual, like might be like something that makes a student more interested in learning about a portrait of a girl that they don't have a name for. So you almost have these talking points that are just going to get the Mm -hmm. the boys to perk up and then you can kind of go into the details of the piece. Right. Like what is so exciting about art is like there are always little nuggets that you can pull out of it that can be really kind of um, tantalizing for students. Or, yeah, or like arguments, mm-hmm. exactly what it is, or arguments about uh, this person says this about this. Right. She's turning this way. This person says she's, you know, turning the other way. Right. Right. And then the boys are like, no, I think she's turning this way. Mm-hmm. And then you got them. Yeah, absolutely. And like, there are always little things and pieces that you can point out. Like, so, you know, Michelangelo paints the Sistine Chapel and he also paints the the wall behind the, the chapel and it's a last judgment scene. And, you know, one of my favorite things to point out because everyone like kind of like bristles at it is um, saints will carry the attribute of their martyrdom with them. So like St. Stephen always has a rock because he was stoned to death. Well, mm-hmm. St. Saint- St. Barnabas was like flayed alive. And so the attribute he holds is his own skin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so what Michelangelo does is he's got this guy holding a skin suit in his hand. Mm -hmm. And like that is kind of gruesome and kind of gory, but also like really interesting. Right. If once you understand the symbolism and the history and the figures and what they're all about, it puts everything together. Right. And that's why it's important to take a a class, right? Like. Mm -hmm. Um, it's one thing to just go into the museum and look at it and say, okay, I don't know who these people are. Right. But if you're sitting in your class and taking each piece, who is this? Why is their face like that? Right. You know, wh- what is the symbolism here? I think that makes anyone appreciate art more. Yeah. Well, and I love art too, because art has so many layers to it, right? Like the, the first layer is like appreciation. Like that is beautiful. Yep. I want to look at that thing. And then you can dig even deeper into the historical analysis and the formal analysis of it. And 
art is something that I think keeps on giving, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You can continue to pull things out of works. Mm-hmm. You, like I sit in class and look at a work and notice something that I hadn't noticed before. Yeah. Like, and I have been studying this for upwards of 10 years at this point. Like there's always something more that I can find. And so I find that art is something that's very connective in that way. Yeah. I mean, you can even just, so I do, um, Edward Hopper is one of my favorite American artists. Mm-hmm. And I just find his pieces so open-ended. Like, what is going mm-hmm. on here? What is this person doing? What are they thinking about? I use that in my English class just to get the ball rolling sometimes and connect it to whatever it is we're talking about. But I just like hearing, what what do you notice? What does my yeah. class notice about this? And then I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. I didn't notice that either. Right. Um, one of my favorite questions to ask is, um, or prompts to give is listen to this piece, which sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but what I'm asking students to do is kind of absorb the visual and apply audio to it. Mm -hmm. So there are some pieces that are quiet and contemplative, and then there are some pieces that are really loud and cacophonous and chaotic, um, and kind of allowing them to sit with that can help them draw even more out of of a piece. Listen to this piece. Yeah, listen to it. I like that. so what are you guys working on next? Where, where are you going in this course? So it's a full are, year, right? It's a full year. Um, so we're still kind of in um, European vein-ish. So after we finished Baroque, we're going to move into neoclassical, um, neoclassicism. So we're going to talk about Jacques-Louis David. This is where kind of the French Academy becomes really important. Um, the French Academy becomes the kind of end-all, be-all for art. What's the French Academy? So the Academy of the uh, the the Academy of Good Art is what it translates to, and they're kind of like the governing body. Think mm-hmm. about it; it's like the NCAA of art, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are kind of telling everyone what the best kind of painting is, what the best kind of sculpture is. They're the ones that are exhibiting the artwork, um, so they're really calling the shots and it becomes very rigid and it becomes very standard. Um, And so we'll move out of kind of the drama of the Baroque into a formulaic depiction of very specific kinds of art and very specific kinds of scenes with the neoclassical period. Who gave them the authority to... to, I think they just took it. They just took it. Yeah, it's, you know, I I think it started as um, a group of artists who, like, were teaching and apprenticing other Mm -hmm. um, growing artists. And then, you know, sometimes things get bigger. What what artists came out of this period that... You're going to look at Jacques-Louis David. Um, you're going to look at Angelica Kaufman. Um, some of the best kind of American portraits, uh, portrait artists are coming out of this period as well. Um, so um, you're looking at kind of architects like Thomas Jefferson's Monticello mm-hmm. is neoclassical. Okay. Um, so I, I just went there a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if I told you that, Mm-mm. but um, it was one of the most like stunning like yeah so we're looking at rationality what i expected when i was going to monticello was this massive mansion like out of control huge just from the picture you you can't really get a sense of how big it is right but it's like it's almost the perfect size like the the building Mm -hmm. um it's very sound i went inside too it's just I, i think it's a worthwhile trip to take just to see like the architecture right. of that and how well, that and, was built. Yeah, and the neoclassical period is all about rationality, all about architecture that makes sense visually, right? So mm-hmm. it's symmetrical. We're looking at things that are going to recall the classical antiquity, so columns and pilasters mm-hmm. and um, kind of 
like a reinterest um, in kind of scientific proportions. proportions, right? So perfect circles, perfect squares, perfect triangles, that kind of stuff, because yeah. it's sturdy. Yeah. Visually, it 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 conveys this idea of permanence and of of um, kind like, of importance, like robustness, robustness, right? So, like, there's a reason that the American, like, the American Capitol and and other buildings for the federal government are all neoclassical, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they they give off a sense of permanence and and of uh, importance and mm-hmm. obje- objectivity in some respect, right? So there's we're not, you know, building Victorian mansions to house the Supreme Court. It it looks like a Greek temple front, hmm. right? So, do you have a favorite period that you teach or that you've mm. studied on your own? I know that's a tough question, but is there anything that you really look forward to? I love World War 1 and kind of the after effects of that on the art world. I think we have a a group of artists that are so disillusioned with what's just happened. And so they can't do anything except express that in art and becomes a little bit grotesque and it becomes a little bit um, less palatable. And it's, it's this really beautiful uh, expression of the, the angst that people were experiencing after the horrors of the war. Hmm. Um, so, and I also love propaganda posters. I think they're fascinating in a historical sense, but also like artistically, you get people to produce, you know, really stunning depictions of kind of this idyllic hmm. person or, or or scene. Do you use any political cartoons in your classes? Uh, Nast, I love Nast. Yeah. I think he's hysterical. Um, so we'll use him. We talk. Um, Kathy Colvitz is. Uh, cartoonist out of germany at that point and so she's doing some cartoons and some other lithographic work for for uh kind of publication so fascinating yeah you teach some cool classes i would love to uh check those out and pop in i always wanted to take an art history class but i feel like they were they were always scheduled like during the afternoon when i was tied up with Mm. other things but um i do love art history and art and um and just like really what we're talking about, that gray middle ground of conversation, discussion. I was in an art class last night doing some painting and this guy was, I mean, he was phenomenal and just so knowledgeable. But he, for the last maybe 25 minutes of the class, was going on in a tangent uh, about whether Van Gogh killed himself or not. And um, yeah, that's just like a. I watched that movie at Eternity's Gate, which I would recommend to mm-hmm. anyone about Van Gogh's life. But that question of like, did like, did, how did he die? Did kids kill him? Like, just random kids shot him after a day of painting. Did he come home after a day of painting something that he loved to do and shoot himself? Like, mm-hmm. how did how did Van Gogh die? And um, it's just it was funny, interesting how this painter teacher was. He was like, yeah, I just like had a, have a sense that this is what happened, and he explains mm-hmm. why exactly he thought that, but. There's definitely room for discussion there, and experts and historians disagree right. about all this stuff. So, well, it's funny that like I think art historians disagree about things more frequently than they agree about things, right? So, a couple of years ago, a painting emerged that you know art historians kind of um, examined and experts examined and decided that this was a genuine Leonardo painting, right? The Salvador Mundi hmm. sold for $450 million at Sotheby's. Like most... It was the highest... Ever. Ever. Yeah. $450 million for a single painting. Um, 
And art historians still don't agree whether or not it's an actual Leonardo, right? Like there are art historians who are advent like adamant that it is not a Leonardo. It's from his workshop. It's a it's a student of his, and they have very specific visual cues that bring them to that conclusion. And then the art historians who are like, this is a genuine Leonardo also have very specific visual cues Mm. that it's a Leonardo. And like my opinion on it is that it is, but like, I'm also not a Leonardo expert, but Mm. like studying his work and looking at this piece lead me to believe that it is a genuine Leonardo. So it's this really interesting, like disagreement on something that's still sold for $450 million. Wow. That it's is, currently in Abu Dhabi. That is absurd. So, and that's and and what that surpassed another painting. Um, trying to, I think we talked about it the other day. Your favorite artist, New York City. Um, Banksy. No. No. Favorite artist, New York City. Uh, like his artwork is very. It's kind oh, Basquiat. Of, yeah, Basquiat. Yeah, yeah. His has has sold recently for. Yeah, he's to, the highest grossing. In America, maybe? Yeah, maybe the highest grossing American artist or the highest grossing artist of color. Mm. Um, Yeah, I mean, his work is genius. I think he was um, tortured and and really kind of the epitome of an artistic genius. And it's a shame that we lost him at 27. But yeah. yeah. Um, So his work, like, I think most people would look at that and and be those people who say, I could do Mm -hmm. this. If you have a kid in your class, and I've always wondered this, who says, Miss Lloyd, I could do this. Yeah. What do you what do you say about a basket? Like So I think the the common retort is, yeah, but you didn't. And like that can be helpful in some ways, but like supremely unhelpful in other ways. I think the more you understand artists and the artistic process, you understand that everything they do is a choice. Mm. So the, like Basquiat's classically trained. He could paint like Leonardo if he wanted to. He was choosing not to. Mm. And there are, there are politics involved in that. And there are kind of, you know, artistic zeitgeist choices being made with his art. Um, so I think that there's this conversation between the artist and the artwork as it's being created that really kind of resonates Hmm. in that sense. Yeah. Um, And I think just to go along with your point, like I started painting here at Gilman just in the art room with Connolly and the the process of actually doing it myself and seeing what mine looks like, like you appreciate the the masters so much more, the greats so much more um, from actually trying it yourself because that like that retort, yeah, but you didn't is – I think somewhat true because like, let's, let's see what you have. Right. You know, um, because it's definitely, it's, it's hard. It takes a lot of time. Right. And these like Basquiat and Picasso, like Picasso could paint proportions perfectly when he was like 13 years old. Yeah. And he chose not to. Right. And like, why didn't he choose to continue to paint that way? Like they're, they're pushing boundaries. I think art is all about pushing boundaries. Right. So like people dislike modernists, Right. Because it doesn't make any sense to them or Mm -hmm. it doesn't make like visual. It's not visually appealing in whatever way. Like I don't particularly like Picasso, but I think his work is incredibly important for kind of the oeuvre of the time period where, Mm -hmm. you know, discussions of like what art is, is becoming more in focus. You can still appreciate his genius, even though maybe you wouldn't hang it above your like bedroom. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, wow that that is really cool, very fascinating. I want to get to your book that you brought in. Yeah. Um, 
try to start off the podcast with this, but we always end up finishing off with the book. So. I think finishing with a book is a good way to do it. So Yeah. So what, what would you recommend to anyone, Gilman community and beyond, to, to read? Yeah. So this is called The Fire This Time. It's an edited collection of essays by Jessamyn Ward. Um, and what she does is riffs off of Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. Mm-hmm. Um, which is it's a it's a collection of essays um, about race in America. This comes out right after 2015, which is um, when kind of the uprisings around Eric Gardner's death and Tamir Rice's death are are happening. Um, the Baltimore riots as well. Um, and so I love this because a everyone who writes in this just the way that they write is absolutely gorgeous, um, but also the the emotion in it is still palpable it's it's raw in some respects and so um as someone who is looking at my own kind of race and my own race uh racial privilege this was really helpful for me to kind of get um maybe the uh narrative understanding of racial injustice that we often ask of black people but are but they are unwilling to give in some aspects because it's really not their job to do it i got that from this Mm. um so it's this really interesting and um poignant look at a very specific moment in american history 2015 you said 2015 yeah um and justman ward has her own uh essay in it but we also you know have Edwidge Dantica, who's a Haitian-American writer, um, she writes The Dewbreaker, which is another book that I, you know, like ugly cried over. I ugly cry over a lot of books. <laughs> um, Kevin Young, uh, you know, Clint Smith. So there's this really amazing kind of collection of American and, and other writers in this book that um, is, is eye-opening in a lot of ways. What, in what ways did this change your perspective or point of view on race in in America? Yeah, I think so. There are a couple essays that I found really, um, really powerful. I think so. It's in part. It's in three parts. You have legacy, reckoning, and jubilee, and um, kind of looking at. Some of these essays, Cracking the Code by Jessamyn Ward was really fascinating because, and and White Rage by Carol Anderson, because what they do in these two essays is discuss the well-meaning white person and why that's unhelpful when when we're looking at racial justice. And as someone who likes to think of myself as racially conscious, like that pointed out flaws in my own uh, kind of interactions with people um, that was unhelpful to kind of striving for the equity and justice that I think this country needs. Mm. Um, so, and just hearing different perspectives, um, of, of people is I think really important as well. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, we, we all know Jasmine Ward is Mm -hmm. a fantastically talented writer Right. and Beth Knapp talked about her. I've taught her and, and I actually learned about her from Brian uh, in my first year of teaching. Salvage the Bones, another book that so you talked good. about. Yeah. Uh, ugly cry. <laughs> ugly I crying. ugly cried on the beach in Guadalupe with Miss Carper sitting next to me on our. We were on a vacation for spring break, what not last year because that was COVID. So the year before, 
And she looked over at me and I was ugly crying and she had, <laughs> you know, no idea what was going on. I was like, the ending is not what I wanted, but it was so good. Yeah. So. Well, that's amazing. That a piece of art or, or fiction or, you know, nonfiction can move you in that way. And I think teaching at Gilman, it gives you the opportunity to be moved in mm-hmm. those different ways pretty much every day. And that's yeah. what I appreciate about this school and kind of working here and even, you know, learning things from my students who are 16 years old, they bring things up all the time every day that I didn't think about that make me react in similar ways. I learn things from my kids every day. So yeah, that's fun. So what, so Gilman School, what is it about this place that keeps you motivated and like wanting to come into the classroom every day? I love the people I work with. I love the kids that I teach. I love that I am encouraged to be curious myself. I'm not expected to be the expert and I don't want to be the expert. So it's fun to work with kids and not just like tell kids things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I love kind of, I love the teacher coach model. I love coaching. I think it's one of my favorite parts of the day. It can kind of, you know, switch gears a little bit and, you know, do something a little different. Um, I think that Gilman just does really special things for kids. I think it allows them to hone the skills they already have and also pick up new things and like question preconceived notions and allow them to the space and the security to explore things um, in a way that like maybe they're dismantling something that they've thought was always true and they're not going to get in trouble for that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So so in, in your classes and the classes that you teach, what is like I'm, I'm interested in like maybe what do you emphasize in your classes? Like what do you want your students to come away from Miss Lloyd's class and enter the next year with? Mm-hmm. Whether that be skills or uh, ways of looking at the world or you know, yeah, minor things. Like what are what do you kind of emphasize for your full year as a teacher? Yeah, so I think skill wise, I want people to ask questions um, and and. Additionally, I want them to kind of take the initiative to research themselves, right? Like we live in an age where you can pull anything up on your phone, right? So ask a question, do the research, and then interrogate the answers you've been given, Mm -hmm. right? Don't take everything at face value. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to be like these kind of jaded skeptics, but I also don't want them to like just kind of allow things into their brain that like maybe doesn't deserve that space, mm-hmm. um, doesn't deserve to live there rent free. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, thematically, I emphasize this idea of global citizenship a lot. Um, my high school was um, really big on that because um, Walter H. Annenberg, who was an ambassador for the United States, actually graduated from my high school. And so his whole thing was that you were supposed to strive for the highest quality of citizenship. And so I kind of adapted that to global citizenship. And what that really means is like, you're not the center of the universe and you should be okay with that. Mm -hmm. And in being okay with that, you're also like called on to be good and to be kind and to uplift others. And Mm -hmm. so I hope that what kids are getting from me is like, it's okay for you not to be the center of everything. In fact, you shouldn't be because there are things that you could be doing for others that will benefit everybody at the end. Yeah, I think that, yeah, that's awesome. Global citizenship and just that wider net of perception outside of yourself. And I think the 
this is something else that I think everyone should watch. And even kids in my class said everyone should watch this after I showed it to them is David Foster Wallace's This Kenyan, is Water. This is Water speech. I think that was 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, but his message is the same thing. It's really global citizenship or just thinking outside of yourself. Right. And catching yourself when you are. Mm-hmm. Because we all are. Like I'm thinking about what am I going to eat for dinner tonight or what am I, how am I going to get home in the snow or right. – or the past, like, why did I screw up on that test? Why did I say, um, three times five minutes ago? Why did, you know? Yeah. Right? Um, and it's easy to get caught up in the web of the, the future and the past, and you're missing out on the situation that we're in right here and thinking about other people, really. Mm-hmm. Exactly your message. So I think that's really I just want great. kids to be, like, I want people to be reflexive, right? Like, like, think about yourself and then think about how thinking about yourself is you know, unhelpful, mm-hmm. right? It's the default setting. Right. It's David. absolutely the default setting. I think humans are innately selfish in that regard. But like, take a moment. Don't think about yourself. Think about other people and then use your ability to think about yourself to help others. Mm-hmm. I think in the speech, he gives such a great example that I actually I experienced on my own this morning, which I was thinking a lot about the speech anyway. So I'm glad this happened. But like I'm at... Um, I'm at Eddie's and I'm just getting one thing, one item. And it's like 730 in the morning before I saw you mm-hmm. at Starbucks. And the person in front of me had a whole, she went shopping this morning. Yeah. She had a whole buggy of stuff. And I was right behind her and I was like, I've got a department meeting right now. Like, let's go. Just let me go ahead of you and I'll get out of here. But she didn't. And that's fine because I had the David Foster Wallace speech in my head. And I think that's just an important thing to carry with us. Right. Um Cause it's not always about you. She might have something else to do and she's got to get out of there and mm-hmm. she's got to feed a family. I don't right. know what she's dealing with. So, um, yeah. Reminding yourself that when you see people, you're really only seeing a snippet of who they are. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like jumping to conclusions is something I'm guilty of, but something I'm working on. Yep. We're all working on it, but yep. Sarah Lloyd is a pleasure to get you on the podcast. Thank you we have very a lot, much. We have a lot more to talk about, but we'll save it for, um, some better weather. Hopefully yeah. it's, pouring snow out there so everyone get home safe and talk to you soon yeah thank you yep